Five Squadron is going to have a bit of a uh, get-together on the uh, eve of the uh, 30th anniversary of the Box Top 22. She asked if I was interested in attending, and I said, absolutely. I want you to know that in 30 years since that accident, this is the first opportunity I've had to speak to anybody in the CF about the, uh, the actions of that night. And, well, nights, I guess, actually. It was all night. But uh, it's, uh, it's nice to uh, have been afforded the opportunity. Now, I immediately offered the services of my older brother, Arnie, there, the Chief Warrant Officer, Sartek, who has dined out on this story for a number of years. And uh, he's obviously a more gifted speaker than I am and probably would have been more engaging than I'm going to be. But uh, I want to make sure I thank Gail for, for, th for thinking of me. And, and uh, I'm sorry that Arnie can't be here, but uh, he's got some other things on the go right now. Uh, that's quite a list of things, eh? <laughs> uh, thank you very much for the introduction. I should have started with that, I suppose. But, um, Box Top 22 was a, uh, a pretty horrific event, and uh, it was certainly something that uh, mobilized uh, a global response for uh, the search and rescue uh, community in Canada and, uh, and, and got the uh, U.S. Air Force uh, assets involved as well. Uh, I think one of the biggest things uh, that came out of it from my perspective was the, uh, was the uh, glaring lack of equipment that our search and rescue technicians had to do the job that night. They were still jumping the old 7TU parachutes. Uh, they ended up with uh, no night vision goggles, no GPSs, no, uh, no uh, quick release mechanisms on uh, bundles that we were dropping out of the airplane, and I'll get to that in just a minute. And, and you know, out of something terrible, good things happened. You know, you guys got your new square chutes, uh, you guys got night vision goggles, you got all the other stuff that uh, was uh, deemed to be a, a shortfall. Um, it was interesting because I was uh, just left the squadron that spring and, uh, and uh, I was in uh, Greenwood, Nova Scotia and we just kind of started, uh, ramped up. I guess we'd been up for four months as the primary fixed wing SAR. And uh, on that night in question, I was on Slash that day and I'd gone into the office for the morning, but I went home and I actually, uh, I laid down at about four o'clock in the afternoon, which is something that was pretty unusual for me to do, but I had a little nap till about six o'clock at night and I got up to have dinner with the uh, family and the phone rang at about seven o'clock and it was Bob Kern, who I'd known from Moose Jaw. Uh, through the course when I was on there, but he was an RCC controller and, and he was the first guy to let us know that, uh, that we had had lost a C-130 up in alert. So uh, it's kind of fortunate to be in the same squadron as your brother who happens to be the SARTEC leader. And uh, anyway, I just told him, I phoned Arnie right away. We only lived about a block apart. I said, yeah, you better scramble the section because it sounds like we've lost a C-130 up north, and I don't know if they declared a major air disaster yet or not, but I think we should respond as though we're going to do that. So uh, we got the SAR crew in. I got an extra, uh, an extra loadmaster. Chuck Coots and Jimmy Norris were the two guys that ended up showing up at the airplane. We put an extra 100 Lu-2 flares on the airplane, and then we filled it up with gas. And that's when the... Uh, when the two loadies come up and said, hey man, we're overweight. Uh, like, we're gonna be about 165,000 pounds for takeoff. And uh, Randy Price, who was our, who's listed as a captain in the book, is, is actually a major. He was a squadron operations officer. 
I said, well, we better, we better get a hold of ATOC and get permission to take off overweight. And uh, Randy was going, he goes, listen, if you ask for it, it's never, it's never going to happen. They're going to tell you to take 10,000 10, pounds of something off. So why don't we just do it and we'll ask for uh, forgiveness after the fact. And that's what we ended up doing. So we took off at 165,000 pounds and we went to alert. So alert is uh, situated pretty much directly north of Greenwood and it's a straight north drive and uh, 2100 nautical miles so it was about a seven hour flight for us we had her gunned and uh, we knew that uh, I think it was rescue 342 was in there ahead of us with Jim Berger and the 435 squadron crew and uh, they weren't able to get a, a visual acquisition of the crash site uh, and I guess we knew that the airplane had crashed because Box Stop 21, the trailing uh, C-130 on the airlift, they, they saw the fire and uh, they were able to kind of pinpoint the location. By the time we got there, there was uh, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of cloud. So uh, Randy was actually flying in the left seat. I was in the right seat and we were going to do the normal uh, throw the flare out, circle around the flare and try to get uh, visual acquisition of something on the ground. And... Uh, so, like I told Randy, I said, like, when we throw that flare out and you start that left-hand turn, you make damn sure you see the flare. Like, that's what we need to see because you don't want one of those things as a hood ornament because that'll go right through the wing and we'll have another C-130 down in alert. So, anyway, we were in cloud and uh, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those things illuminate the cloud, but it's just like a, the whole cloud turns an orangey pink and... Uh, and Randy's racking that airplane around and descending like a madman and I'm in the other seat looking cross cockpit kind of going do you have it do you have it like do you see it Randy yeah yeah I think I got it I think I got it and on that first one we had the flare go by the right hand side of the airplane and I'm thinking like well you didn't have it because it's over here so you know like let's let's not do that let's let's try it again but keep the flare in sight so we try to uh, decrease the rate of free fall so uh, we used 250 feet of free fall and uh, even on the second one, we couldn't keep the uh, flare in sight. So I wanted to land an alert, and uh, they already had four C-130s on the apron in, uh, in alert, and basically the command post told us to, to poke off and go to, uh, go to Thule. Um, so we got to Thule, now I got 14 Sartex and uh, the rest of the crew, I'm trying to get them into the uh, North Star Hotel there, or whatever it is, but. Anyway, we get everybody a room, said, go to bed, and we'll wake you up when we need you. And uh, Randy and uh, Mark Fav and myself, we got a six-pack of beer, and we went to my room, and we each had a couple of beers. And we said, well, we knew that the over-snow vehicles were going, and uh, we had kind of made the assumption that, you know, this thing was going to be over. So, you know, we, we had our kick at the can, and we didn't do anything, so we just went to bed. And uh, about five or six hours after we had uh, laid down, uh, I got up. Of course, in Thule, they got CNN, eh? <laughs> you know? So turn on the TV, and sure enough, nobody's got to the crash site yet. So I'm thinking, like, uh, well, that's pretty interesting. And uh, the next thing you know, the phone's ringing, and it's the command post in, uh, in alert saying, look, it, uh, we need you guys back here. So... Anyway, we got back down to the airplane, we filled it up with gas, and away we went. And uh, the takeoff out of uh, Thule, for those of you who have been there, was pretty interesting that night. There was a hell of a crosswind, and uh, I took the left seat uh, for that takeoff. And uh, 
we uh, were taken off towards the water there, so I don't know what the orientation is there, but probably 2-7 true or something like that. I'm not 100% sure, but anyway, we got a big crosswind from the left, and as we're rolling down the runway, I can't keep the airplane straight with the flight controls as we're, as we're trying to take off. So we ended up actually having to retard the number one engine, and of course that gets the engineer pretty excited because he sees the torque starting to fall off on one of his engines. He's screaming at me, and Randy's calling it out. Everybody's pretty excited in the flight deck, and I had to tell those guys, I said, I'm doing that, you know, it's the only way I can keep the airplane on the runway. So we basically did a three and a half engine takeoff out of, a, uh, out of Thule, and I thought, okay, good, we got airborne, we got the gear going up, and I got the engine fed back in. And then we, we hit the worst turbulence I'd ever been in in any airplane in my whole life. And the airplane just fell about uh, 100 feet in, in, a, in a millisecond. In fact, some of the Sartex who were running around in the back there with the loadmasters, they, uh, they went up to the hog's trough, eh? Luckily, we didn't hurt anybody. But uh, we went back to the, uh, to the crash site. So it's about two hours, or probably an hour and 45 minutes to get up to alert from uh, Thule. And, uh, and so Fred Ritchie and the 435 squadron, or 440, 435 squadron, Sartex, they were in the uh, go track vehicles. So there was two of those trying to make their way over land to the crash site. And really our tasking was to help these guys navigate because these guys were driving in about 30 feet of visibility. They couldn't see anything because they were in the middle of a blizzard. So they wanted to go via the coast to the Sheridan River and then after the Sheridan River they were going to go inland. So they had a game plan and all we had to do is we would, uh, and we could see them from on top. I mean we could see them through the blowing snow and uh, basically we'd go over a geographic feature. Mushroom Point comes to mind and I said uh, okay, we're over Mushroom Point, here's the flare, and then, you, you know, do you, you see the flare? And they'd say, yep, so head for that location because that's where you need to be. So we did that for, so we were chucking out a lot of Lutus, and about every 45 minutes we'd take a, we'd go back to the crash site to see if we could throw a flare out and actually get a visual acquisition of the crash site. And it was during one of these periods where, where we actually, uh, we were throwing a flare out over the accident or the crash site and uh, Fred Ritchie comes up on the FM radio and he goes, hey, like, uh, where are you guys? We got, uh, we, got, uh, we, got a, uh, we got a flare, but it's in our back window. And I said, okay, don't, don't go any further. We're going to come back and see where you guys are going. And uh, in the midst of all of that, those guys had turned those go track vehicles and they were going right out to sea and about a quarter mile ahead of them was an open lead. So if those guys would have traversed another 1,500 feet, they'd have been in the drink. We probably would have never heard from them again. I don't know if those go tracks actually float or not. But anyway, we got them back on the shore and, uh, and then we guided them a little bit more and then we went back to the crash site. And then finally we got uh, Jerry Domney was the uh, jump master that night. He got, uh, he got eyes on the site, so, you know, as per the normal night operations, we're throwing out a target marking light, then we're going to throw out a wind drift indicator, and uh, all those good uh, night procedures that work when there's, uh, you know, five knots of wind and they don't blow away. Well, our uh, target marking light was gone as soon as it left the airplane. We never saw it again, and uh, 
And then the, uh, we went out to do a wind drift indicator, and it was the same thing. And then finally Jerry Domney said, like, look, we've been around here all night. I said, I have a pretty good idea where the guys need to get out. Let's just get them ready to go, and we'll, we'll dispatch them. So we got 11 of the 14 Sartex ready to jump. We did two sticks, a stick of six and a stick of five. And on the first one, we were doing kind of the normal night drop operation where we'd fly over the target, offset by 30 degrees, go out so many seconds, drop a flare, and then descend down and have to have the guys out of the airplane inside of three minutes. Well, of course, these guys are all in the door. They're ready to go. And, and I didn't get the airplane down quick enough to get to the exit point. So we stopped, dropped. Eh? Anyway, my older brother, he got on the intercom after that, and he gave me a talking to. He says... Well, I'm not going to say exactly what he said, but in no uncertain terms, he said there'll be no more stop drops. We're going. So what we ended up doing was uh, we did the same procedure, and then what I had the loadmasters do is take two Lou twos uh, to uh, with basically zero free fall, and uh, so get them ready. When the guys left the airplane, we did a 90 degree left turn in a climb. And then we dispatched them after we were 15 seconds separated. So, and in fact, that worked very well. Those guys had good illumination for the landing. In fact, a couple of the guys almost hit the uh, vertical stab on the ground. Eh? They, had to, they had to steer off. And then uh, all we heard, I mean, we didn't hear anything. I mean, we didn't have a recovery plan at that time. And I was kind of a little bit leery about dispatching the team. Even though it's a big team, I was leery about dispatching them because we didn't know how we were going to get the guys back. So, anyway, Arnie comes up on the radio and said, hey, good soft landing, send the next five guys down. So we did. We did the same procedure. We dispatched another five Sartex. It's kind of interesting for those of you who have been in the airplane when we're deploying uh, uh, jumpers. Normally, when you, you can feel the guys go out the door and you can feel each, each one when the static line comes to the end and deploys the chute, so it's kind of a tunk, 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 tunk. Uh, that six and that five, it was like, woomph, and that was it. So those guys were pretty close together when they went out, so it was, uh, it was good. So anyway, they, needed, uh, they just jumped with penetration medical kits, and... Uh, they wanted to get their survival gear, which I can understand. I mean, you're in the middle of a blizzard, and I don't know how long these guys are going to be there. So we took, we had uh, two toboggans, two toboggan kits on board, and we had, uh, we took all of their survival equipment, all the B-25 kits the guys had been dispatched. We put them all into a cargo net. Loadmaster secured it, put a couple 24-foot canopies on it, put about, I don't know, probably a dozen or two dozen glow sticks on it, and we just did the, uh, without any illumination, we just did the run and we dispatched it uh, from a thousand feet. I, I should have said that, we were dispatching from a thousand feet that night, maybe a little bit lower, but that's, that's what altitude those guys got out of the airplane. The bad thing about it is, is because those parachutes didn't have any release mechanism on them, they never did get the B-25 kits. I, I mean, I'd like to go up to the Arctic sometime, see if you guys could find that, because there's probably you know, fifty or sixty thousand bucks worth of survival equipment that was in those things that and as well as every Sartec lost their Omega dive watch too, you know, that <laughs> I wonder if that still happens. <laughs> anyway, the guys were on the ground and they and they did their job. Uh, Arnie actually tells a funny story about when the Pave Hawks came in. So um, you know they they had done their triage and 
and they did the best they could for the people on the ground. And, and it was a good thing they got in there when they did because those people in that tail of that airplane were going to die. There was really only one coherent person in that tail of the airplane, and it was the flight engineer, Paul West. And uh, it kind of makes me tear up a little bit, but Arnie said that when he went into the tail of the airplane, they got their lights on, eh, and their, or their headlamps or whatever the hell he was using, and he's looking around, and everybody's lying down in various states of survival, but Paul was up in the tail, and he was upright, but he looked like he was, well, he was pretty beat up too, but he said, uh, Arnie basically, they had worked together, so he said, Paul, Paul, it's Arnie McCauley, it's Arnie, and Paul looked up, <laughs> and he said, I, jeez, he said, I, I told him you would come. I, I knew you'd come. And they were there. So, fuck. That's a little embarrassing. Anyway, they saved those people's lives. And it was, uh, it was a good thing. Anyway, we, uh, we recovered at alert that night. And uh, we were there when they brought the survivors in. We were, we were there when they brought the non-survivors in. And uh, they were getting ready to medevac those people out. So we spent the night in alert that night, and then the next day we took our 413 Squadron 305. We took that airplane to Thule, and uh, I got uh, the guys back into the. Uh, they didn't. They didn't have rooms in the North Star Inn or whatever the name of the hotel is. So we got one of them trains. Eh? So everybody was at a room in one of those big old uh, barrack blocks. So I told us, our text, I said, you know, we're going to go to the top of the World Club tonight, and we're going to have beer. I like ordering pizza there. They make great pizza. But I said, you know, when you guys get to the bar, there's going to be a lot of Danish guys that are really interested in you. <laughs> and I said, if they start buying you liquor and invite you back to the bar in their barrack block, what I'm going to tell you guys is say thanks for the drink, but I don't think I'm going to join you. Uh, because there's some, some, maybe some nefarious acts that will be taking place if you join them. So anyway, I, uh, you know, we take a shower, we get ready, we go over to the top of the World Club. Of course, the boys are all there. They're all lined up at the bar. It's a big horseshoe bar. And uh, there's one Sartek to two or three Danes all the way around the bar. And I, and I walked up to Ron O'Reilly and I said, uh, did I not talk to you, Ron? Like, he goes, it's okay. These guys are buying liquor. I'm staying with them. So, anyway, we did that, and then we went back to Greenwood. Uh, quite a uh, media storm when we got back to the squadron, and, of course, the Sartex in their orange flying suits are quite the heroes in front of the media's eyes. And, and, and they had, uh, and, and rightfully so, they were, they were heroes, and they were uh, people that should be looked up to for the job that they did that night. I asked the CEO if I could talk about this, and I'm going to kind of use this as a privileged platform, but I want to talk about write-ups for uh, awards for the job that those guys did that night. So when I went to the criteria for the awards and for the bravery awards, every one of those Sartex that jumped into that crash site, every one of those Sartex that jumped into go tracks, Every one of those people that were driving those go tracks, they deserve the star of courage for what they did that night. They deserve the star of courage because they saved lives that night 
And those people, if we would have left them any longer, there would have been, there would have been a lot more casualties. So I wrote all 14 SARTEX from Greenwood and, and I coordinated with uh, 435 and I said, like, I'm writing these guys up for the, for the star courage. That's the minimum these guys should get for what they did that night. If, if you'd like, they were jumping in those old round parachutes. Uh, the winds at altitude were 45 knots. I don't know what they were on the ground. It's, we're only 1,000 feet up, so I got to imagine that they're probably just as strong down there. The visibility wasn't good, and they went with nothing but a medical penetration or, or a medical penetration kit. So, you know, there was a there was a possibility that we were going to lose somebody doing that job that night, and and we did. And when I think that's that's incredible, and that's it says a real testament to the training that that trade does. So, I wrote them up for the Star Courage. Went to the uh, wing became a medal of bravery, went to ATG. We can't have uh, 14 medals of bravery. Uh, that's too many. Uh, put him in for a meritorious uh, service cross, goes to uh, NDHQ and now it becomes a meritorious service medal. I said like, I, I, I started with my crew, the air crew, I started with a meritorious service cross and my crew didn't get anything. I got a CDS accommodation. My older brother got a meritorious service cross and the Sartex all got a meritorious service medal. But I'll tell you what they did that night was courageous and they should have won, they should have won a bravery award for what they did that evening. And it's sad that, that that's the way it kind of panned out. Anyway, I've probably taken up more of your time than you want. Uh, I want to thank 435 for inviting me. It's really a privilege. It's uh, I last touched a C-130. Could have been 305. I should have actually looked at my logbook, but I haven't haven't actually flown a C-130 since July '93. Some of you guys weren't even born, so. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, it's uh, it's been a privilege and an honor to be here. And uh, if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Or if you just want to get on your way, you can do that too. Anyway, thank you very much, 435 Squadron. Thank you, sir, for inviting me. It's been my pleasure to be here and uh, give you a little chat. Rescue!